Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Well, Zachariah blew it big time on the biggest day of his life. There were many positions to be filled in the temple service. Some were more desirable than others. But one of the most desirable tasks was to offer up incense in the holy place at the hour of prayer. And in order to determine who should get this popular job, they would cast lots. It was basically like drawing a name out of a hat or, or rolling the dice. And if at the casting of the lots, the, the lot fell to you, then you were the chosen one by God to offer up incense at the time of, of prayers. And this was literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a priest. Once you were the guy you never got to enter back into the drawing again. Did you know that? You know, Zechariah, the priest, he was not a, a big shot in Israel. There were thousands of priests in Israel in the first century. And really only a handful of them were known as high priests. The rest of them were organized by clan and were really only called to active duty about two weeks out of the year. Zechariah was probably a, a rural priest from the hill country of Judea, probably of modest means. But the, the, the text of Scripture here in Luke chapter 1 tells us that during one of Zechariah's two weeks of service, when his priestly division was serving at the temple in Jerusalem, something really special happened. Zechariah's lot was cast and he was chosen to be the guy to enter into the temple and offer up prayers. And as I said, it's no exaggeration to say that this was the biggest day of Zechariah's ministry. You could even say it was the biggest day of his life. Especially since something even more extraordinary happened. As Zechariah's lot was cast and he entered into the holy place to offer up incense and prayer, suddenly the angel Gabriel himself appeared. I, I can't imagine how awe-inspiring that must have been. I mean, it's obvious Zacharias was, was struck with awe and fear because the first thing Gabriel says is, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. What prayer? Well, I think it was the prayer that he had just offered as he was offering up the incense. It was no doubt a prayer for the deliverance of Israel. Deliverance of the nation. Zechariah goes on, he says, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. This was no doubt a, a hope that and a prayer that Zechariah and Elizabeth had had for many years, but I think it had been probably a long time since they had been asking the Lord for a child based upon Zechariah's uh, reaction here. He wasn't expecting 
he had, I don't think he had just prayed, oh Lord, please, in, in my wife's old age, please bless her with a child. And then the angel Gabriel shows up and guess what? You're going to have a child, right? I don't think that's what had happened. I think Zechariah had probably prayed for that many, many years ago and had long since given up hope. And yet on this occasion, he had prayed for the deliverance of the nation and Gabriel shows up and says, hey, your, your prayer has been, been heard and oh, by the way, your, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call him by the name of John. So God is going to bring about this deliverance and also wrap in a personal deliverance, a, a personal answer to prayer request that I think Zacharias had probably long forgotten. By the way, the name John, it's a common name. We have a John here in our church. Several Johns, actually. Uh, it means Jehovah is gracious. Jehovah is gracious. Look how intentionally God named this child. Jehovah is gracious. Now, Gabriel goes on here, and he goes on to give Zechariah all sorts of details about John, including the information in, in verse 16. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Gabriel says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. I don't really have time this morning. It's not really the aim of my sermon to, to show you, but Gabriel is using very clear Old Testament language here to identify this child, this John, this Jehovah is gracious as the forerunner of the Christ, the forerunner of the Messiah. Big day, right? Big announcement, big news that Zechariah had just received. When I was back home for Thanksgiving just recently, I went to this old... 18th century Episcopal church there in, in my parents' hometown. And um, I was in the churchyard because they, they now have a, a playground in the churchyard and my little niece and, and nephews were playing at the playground. And I couldn't help it but take a look at some of the old gravestones that were there. Some of them were, you know, in the 1700s. And there was a little plaque there that, that said that... Uh, George Washington and James Monroe had worshipped at this location when they were in town many years ago. And that George Whitfield had once preached there in 1765. A lot of interesting history. So I started looking at the, at the headstones and, you know, these headstones ha- often had one-sentence summaries of, of the most significant thing that this person ever did. Like so-and-so died on this date, blah, blah, blah. He signed the such and such a document that was sent to the Constitutional Congress at such and such a time or whatever. You know, it was a one-sentence summary of his biggest day. (laughs) This was that kind of a day for Zechariah. Man, when he got selected to go in to offer prayers at the temple, Gabriel showed up. and, And he announced to him that his son would be the forerunner of the Christ. You can boil Zachariah's life down to this one moment. 
And yet, if you know the story, on Zechariah's biggest day, he stumbles in unbelief. He turns to Gabriel and he says, How shall I know this? (laughs) For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. To which Gabriel responds, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And it was so. Right? In fact, not only could Zechariah not speak, but by the way they were kind of motioning to him at the birth of his son in the passage Mark just read, you can also surmise that it seems as if he couldn't hear either. They had to motion to him. Silence. Complete silence. No listening, no speaking for, for nine months. It's as if Gabriel says here, okay, Zachariah, you want a sign so that you can believe? Then behold, you shall become the sign. No more talking from you until these things take place. Zechariah should have known better, shouldn't he? He was a priest in Israel. He was standing in the temple of God, in the holy place. He was the one selected by Lot to offer up the incense and the prayers. He should have known better. He knew the scriptures. Right? This isn't the first time that God miraculously opened a barren woman's womb. Abraham's wife, Sarah, Isaac's wife, Rebecca. In fact, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's wives, the, the, the three great patriarchs of the Israelite nation, were all barren until God opened their wombs. But we also have other examples in the Old Testament. Samson's mom, we don't know her name, but she was barren until an angel showed up to her and announced to her the, birth, the coming birth of Samson. And don't forget Hannah, the mother of Samuel, right? So that's, let me count them, one, two, three, four, five, right? <laughs> so this wasn't the first time. This was going to be the sixth time that God had done this, at least. So it's ironic, I think, in, in Luke chapter 1 here, that a priest in the temple on his big day struggles to believe the angel Gabriel and is struck silent for nine months. Meanwhile, as we come into the the next story here about, about this little teenage girl from Nazareth, nobody from nowhere, receives even greater news that she, a virgin, will bear the Messiah. She will give birth to the Son of God. And yet she believes and is blessed. It's ironic. In fact, it's an irony that was not lost on Zacharias's wife, Elizabeth. Right? She, full of the Spirit, exclaims a blessing over, over Mary in verse 45. Right? When, when Mary shows up and is visiting with Elizabeth and she's filled with the Holy Spirit, and she starts excitedly proclaiming this blessing over Mary as the, the mother of her Lord. And at the end of that, she says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. 
not like my husband. And doesn't this foreshadow the coming of the gospel in just so many ways? Jesus would one day pray in the midst of his ministry, Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, lifted his eyes up to heaven and he he prayed out loud, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Isn't that the pattern of the gospel? I can't help but wonder, what did Zechariah think about during his nine months of silence? What did he think about? What sort of things did he communicate in his humbled condition to his dear pregnant wife? I think it's obvious that one of the ways he did communicate during this time was through writing because he asked for a tablet to write on there in the birth story that we just read. A pastor by the name of of Joe Novenson mused on this thought of what what was Zachariah thinking about. And he said it this way. I'm going to quote him directly. He said, If I were Zachariah, I would have come out there and I would have started writing notes to Elizabeth like crazy. And here's some of the things I would have written to Elizabeth. The moment came. The greatest moment of my life just came. Not just of my life, the greatest moment for the whole world. And Elizabeth, I was looking at Gabriel and I blew it. I can imagine Elizabeth saying, you're a priest, you know the sacrifices, you lead us in all the, sa- the sacrifices for our sins, you know God can forgive this. And I'll tell you what I would, ri- would have written back. Elizabeth, let me say it again. I'm a royal, five-star, award-winning, no competition, over the top, I've done the whopper, spiritual mess. End quote. You know, in many ways, I think Zechariah the priest symbolizes really even the whole nation of Israel, where the the spirit of prophecy has been silent for over 400 years. And then suddenly, the the long-awaited day finally comes, and she, who was once called barren, gives birth to a healthy baby boy. Think about it. Zechariah couldn't hear his newborn son cry. Nor could he hear the joyful words that Elizabeth spoke. He couldn't even cry out with a shout of thanksgiving. He couldn't pronounce a blessing over his son. It's not until eight days later at the child's circumcision, at the dedication, his dedication in the temple, that finally something happens. At this joyous occasion, the neighbors and relatives seemingly you know, sort of getting in their business, trying to help name the child, right? I mean, they assume that an only son born to an older couple would most certainly want to pass on the father's name. I mean, that would, that would have been customary. That would have been the expected thing to do. Yet, in obedience to the Lord, Elizabeth insists, no, his, his name is going to be John. Jehovah is gracious. 
And all the relatives and friends, they think, surely this isn't to be so. There's no one in the family with that name. So let's, let's go to the father. Let's pull rank. Let's go to Zechariah. Surely he will think otherwise. So they make signs to Zechariah and they inquire of him what he wished the name, what he wished to name the child. Zechariah answers on his little writing tablet very firmly and immediately. His name is John. <laughs> no, no equivocation right, by this time. In, in faith, Zechariah obeys the command of the Lord and names him John, and that settles it. And the text of Scripture says that the people all wondered at this. But it's sort of like, wait, there's more. <laughs> because immediately, Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed. And bursting forth from his mouth comes the, this benediction, this blessing to God himself. I mean, can you imagine the joy of this moment? This once barren couple, this long, silent man holding their eight-day-old little miracle. Friends and family gathered around and this silenced, unbelieving one suddenly set loose and filled with the Holy Spirit to declare the fulfillment of God's promises. I mean, what a moment. What a moment. And that's how we get verses 67 through 79. It's this benediction of Zechariah standing over his eight-day-old son, and this prophecy, this benediction, really can be broken into two stanzas. First stanza being verses 68 through 75. And really we see here that this stanza is Zechariah blessing God for being a promise-making, promise-keeping God. Blessed be our promise-keeping God. When Zechariah's mouth is finally open, Zechariah doesn't complain about the past nine months. That's probably what I would have done. <laughs> right? He doesn't, he doesn't even, in fact, this is the most remarkable thing to me, he doesn't even begin to speak about his little, his little baby that was just born, miraculous baby. At least not at first. I mean, Terry, you just had a, a new granddaughter born this week, Naomi Grace. Can you imagine your son Drew standing over her and not having been able to speak for nine months, and finally his mouth is opened, and who does he speak about? Some other child. <laughs> but that's what Zechariah does here. He doesn't complain. He doesn't even first directly speak about his own son, nor does he speak about any other personal or familial matter. Instead, Zechariah is filled up with the Spirit of God to pronounce a blessing on God himself for the salvation of his people through the coming Messiah. You'll notice that Zechariah is speaking here in the, in the past tense. Kent Hughes called this the prophetic past tense because it's as good as done. Even though these things are still unfolding and they're right on the cusp of happening. Look at verse 68 here. Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Blessed be our Lord God, because he's visited us, not as God visited uh, 
the Tower of Babel before he dispersed the people across the face of the earth. Not as he visited Sodom and Gomorrah before he rained down sulfur from heaven and destroyed that city. No, he's visited us and he has redeemed us. The Messiah was coming into the world, not at this time to judge the world, but to redeem or to buy back his people. Can you imagine the people standing around Zechariah wondering, what are you talking about, Zechariah? How has God visited us and redeemed us? Last I checked, Rome was looking pretty strong out there. Things are looking pretty bleak. But Zechariah goes on in verse 69. He speaks of how God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. This isn't talking about the instrument, a trumpet or something like that. No, this is talking about the, the horn like of an animal, like a bull. Symbolizes strength or power. Think of how much more dangerous a bull becomes, a young bull becomes once his, his horns emerge. Zechariah says, this horn of salvation has been raised up in the house of his servant David. You know, long ago, God has made, had made a covenant with, with uh, the house of David, a, a covenant promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that a son of David would have, the, have his kingdom established forever and ever. We call it the Davidic covenant. Zechariah goes on in verses 70 and 71. He says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Two things here. This coming son of David has been long foretold by the Lord's prophets, and the purpose of his coming is that we should be saved from our enemies. So Zechariah is blessing God for visiting and redeeming his people just as he promised to David in the Davidic covenant, just as he foretold through his prophets of of long ago. And now lastly, Zechariah reaches all the way back to Father Abraham in verses 72 and 73. He says, To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. God promised to Abraham covenant faithfulness when he made the covenant with him in Genesis 15 and 17. That's how faithful our God is. And Zechariah sees it unfolding in his own days and he's filled with the Spirit to declare it. He finishes here in, in, at the end of verse 73 through 75. He says, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That's why the Lord rescues and redeems us. It's not so that we can be free from our sin and then go our own way. Just like when he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, he he didn't free them from slavery to Pharaoh so that they could scatter across the face of the earth. No, he called them out of Egypt and brought them out into the wilderness so that they might come to him and they might worship and be his people. Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises of God and Zechariah sees it, he sees it unfolding and he blesses the name of the Lord for it. 
The Lord God of Israel is the promise-making, promise-keeping God. All of Scripture has been pointing with a big neon yellow arrows to this moment. And Zechariah, on the cusp of it all coming about, he prophetically sees it as good as done, and he blesses the name of the Lord for it. And as exciting as it was, no doubt, to contemplate the role that his own son was going to play in this and the miraculous little baby he held in his, his, his arms in this moment, as exciting as that was, he, in this moment, looks past his own son to what that means is coming down the road. The Messiah. Christ. That brings us to the second stanza here, the last three verses of the Benedictus. Zechariah is essentially saying here, my son, you are only a pre-dawn alarm for the coming sunrise. That's what I see. Zechariah's son would grow up to be the last and greatest of all the old covenant prophets in fact, that's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, if you want to read that later. He says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater, referring to John. And the reason Jesus gives for that is because he was sent to prepare the way for him, for Jesus. Right? Can you imagine saying that? Pointing to your, I, I guess, your, your relative and saying, man, he's the greatest one that's ever been born of women because he prepared the way for me. Because Jesus was God. And he knew it. So Zachariah's son would grow up to be the greatest ever born among women to that point. Yet even from eight days old, he was merely a shadow of the greater one to come. And I think John the Baptist would would grow up and live and minister in the knowledge that his ministry and popularity would and should soon fade in the light of the coming sunrise, coming Messiah. John would grow up knowing that he wasn't worthy to even stoop and untie the sandals of him who was to come. He would know that his life's goal was to prepare people for the coming of the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. John would know that the Messiah must increase and he, John, must decrease. And so in verse 76 here, Zechariah finally turns to his own son. And this is what he says. He acknowledges his role. He says, and you, my child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And that's it. Right? That's, that's all that Zechariah says about his son because he immediately, in the very next verse, returns to what that means about the coming Messiah and the salvation to come. He finishes here by, by saying in, in 77 through 79, he says, uh, you're going to prepare his ways to, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way 
of peace. You know, the way that John prepares people for the Christ will be a way of salvation characterized by experiential knowledge of the forgiveness of sins. Right? This way, this way that John's preparing is that the Lord might come and give us experiential knowledge that our sins have been forgiven. The knowledge of salvation. He speaks of knowing the tender mercies of God. And lastly, he speaks of light. Light. Even John the Baptist's father looked past him to the, the sunrise, the day spring. It's as if Zach, Zechariah is saying here, son, it, it's true that you are the forerunner of the Christ, but you're only sounding the alarm for the, the coming day spring. Son, you're preparing the way by preaching a message of repentance of sins, but look what's coming by the tender mercies of God. The sunrise shall visit us from on high. It's as if we've all been sitting in the great darkness and cold of night in the shadow of death, but look, the dawn is coming. And by his light, our feet shall be guided into the way of true shalom, true wholeness and peace. So what does this mean for us? Let me just give you three attempts here in closing at applying these lofty things to your life. Because this matters immensely. First, the sunrise can outshine our sins. I love the way, just like we were talking about, Zechariah blew it on his biggest day. And I don't know what he was, I can only speculate at what he was thinking about for nine months of silence, but I do know that as he came out of that, that, those nine months of silence, he came out of it blessing the name of the Lord. Zechariah, in unbelief, had asked for a sign, and he became the sign. He became a visible representation of the crippling effect of our own unbelief. However, as Sinclair Ferguson put it, sometimes God must mar us that he might mend us. Sometimes God shuts us up that we might finally listen. You might say like Zechariah, I've blown it big time. Like, like Zachariah, I failed to believe, even when there was a reason right in front of me to believe. I blew it. Listen, my friend, it's never too late to repent and believe. It's never too late. You can come out of your darkness, out of your silence, praising 
God like Zechariah. I think Zechariah's story is a vivid picture of what the gospel is all about. Believe in Christ today for the first time for the salvation of your sins. Or like Zechariah, who I, I really believe was already a believer, but who had stumbled. Get back up in the joy of the Lord and let the rising sun shine on you again. Confess your sins, forsake them. It's the message of John the Baptist. How do you prepare the way for the Lord? It's through the repentance of your sins. John didn't come, even though he came in the spirit of Elijah, he didn't come calling down fire from heaven. He came preaching a simple message of repentance. What a, what a message we need to hear again today. The power of the, the Spirit of God. Repent of your sins. Make way for the Lord. It's the way that, that it was prepared for his first coming, and it's the best way we can prepare for his second coming. Repent of your sins. Believe. Believe again. Secondly, the sunrise can give you hope. You need some hope this morning? Have you had it with the hopelessness all around you? Man. I was listening to a podcast by Alistair Groves this week on the topic of hope. And he, he mused on, on this one thought. He said, it's very strange that God would make promises to us. It's a very odd thing for a sovereign God to do. The God who holds all of history in his hands, who's going to make things go the way that he chooses for them to go, who holds every last moment, every last atom utterly under his control. Why does he bother giving anyone any promises ever at all? Why does he do it? And this is the, the conclusion that Alistair came up with. He said he wants promises to encourage us. He wants promises to be this ever-replenished seedbed of hope for us. He makes us those promises because he deeply desires for us to be encouraged. Zechariah was encouraged with great hope. And he was only on the cusp of these things coming about. <laughs> he was on the near side of Christmas. How much more reason do we have to put our hope in the promises of God alone who live on the far side of Christmas, not to mention the far side of Easter, not to mention the far side of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit? You say, but oh, it's taking him so long to return. Why must I wait upon the Lord? Listen, it's only because of God's mercy that he delays. He will keep his promises in time. Don't give up hope. Though everyone gives up hope around you, don't give up hope. God's already fulfilled his promises. He just has a few left to do. Thirdly, the sunrise 
can illumine everything and everyone else. I'll close with this. When you get the true meaning and significance of Christmas, when you have the experiential knowledge of the forgiveness of your sins, when you know by experience the tender mercies of God through Jesus Christ our Lord, when you see the bright illuminating light of the Son of God casting out all your darkness and sin and death and gloom, I think then you are enabled to realize that everything and everyone else is dim and shadowy compared to him. Amen? He is the brilliant morning star. It's on vacation for Thanksgiving, as I mentioned, and I don't normally get to see sunrises around here because there's too many trees, you know? <laughs> but at my parents' house, you can look out and they live right along a river and you can see, every morning I could see the, the sun coming up. And uh, I just love, that's one thing I love about being at their house. And the one downside to it is it gets me out of bed early on my vacation because <laughs> I want to see the sunrise up over the river. It's just incredible, the brilliance of it. I mean, it, you know, as, it, as, it, as the sun comes up and the, the, the sky begins to turn all these brilliant colors, it's, it's fun to watch. And then suddenly there's that moment where the sun actually peaks up over the horizon and it becomes so bright. You have to look away. And everything that was once sort of all grays and, and dark and hard to see is suddenly lit up. Not from a, a brilliance that it itself possesses, but it's gaining that illumination from the morning sun. Zechariah, he, he sees here, he sees the coming Christ, and he, he marvels that this sunrise shall visit us from on high. I mean, when you get that, right, it, it should... Uh, illumine everyone, everything else. Not, you shouldn't be looking elsewhere for your sunshine, for your light. You know that old song? My grandma used to have this magnet on her fridge. You could walk up and push it, and it would play the old song. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You know the song? You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. So please don't take my sunshine away. We all know that song, right? It's a sweet sentiment, isn't it? But truthfully, that's a terrible burden to place on somebody else. That's what we do. We look at our beloved one and we say, you're my sunshine. Oh, please don't take my sunshine away. Listen, as Christians, I don't care if you're holding a miraculous eight-day-old son in your lap. He's not your sunshine. Because what happens if your sunshine gets taken away? Right, as Christians, Jesus is our sunshine. Right? 
He is our only sunshine. It's not to say that we don't thank God for the other relationships in our life. But don't put any man, woman, boy, or girl in that place that only Jesus belongs. Have you looked for something or or someone else for light? One more song comes to mind. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for your tender mercies. Thank you for Lord, sending John with the name Jehovah is gracious to be the forerunner for your son, which means Yahweh will save. Lord, thank you for sending the very light of your very presence, Lord, into our midst. Lord, may we look to him for our light for our forgiveness, for our hope. Lord, I pray that you would minister to the hopeless today. Lord, I pray that you would forgive those bent down with the weight of their sin. And God, I pray that you would redirect our gaze to the morning star. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.